Our text this morning is the uh, same one as it was last week because this is part two of a sermon that was begun last week and from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. The book of Hebrews really is a remarkable book of the Scriptures. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough, but it, it's not an easy and accessible uh, book in terms of modern readers because one of the things the book of Hebrews does is teaches us the New Testament significance of all of those Old Testament laws and regulations and things that we haven't spent very much time reading about. And, uh, and yet we see the true inward significance and we see how God has been planning from the beginning to call to Himself a people of His very own to the praise of His glory who He will bless beyond any expectation. And therefore, how should we live? Well, Hebrews 12 and verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Father, we come into Your presence this morning and we bow and we ask, O Lord, that as we try to draw near to You, that You would draw near to us and that your word would live before us and in us, and that we would be transformed by you. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, God has spared us all through another week, and so we pick up where we left off last Sunday. We were in uh, Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, and we were learning about the Lord's discipline. And just by way of very brief review, uh, we said last week that there is a great difference between discipline and punishment. Punishment is the application of pain for the purpose of satisfying the demands of justice. Punishment is about retribution. It's about exacting a price. 
Um, it's about receiving a just sentence for crimes that have been forgiven. Discipline, on the other hand, is the application of pain for the purpose of either correcting bad behavior or strengthening weakness. God never punishes the Christian. Never, never. Christ is the one who took our punishment on the cross. The punishment of God leads to hell. That's the function of hell, is punishment. But God does discipline the Christian. And that distinction is extremely important because when a sovereign God applies pain to your life for disciplinary purposes, he is correcting you. He is not casting you off. And I especially want to emphasize that in light, uh, some of you probably read the New International Version, the NIV, uh, uh, the not inspired version is what I call it. The NIV's unfortunate translation of the Greek word uh, here in uh, Hebrews 12.6 as mastigoi, uh, it renders that verb, he punishes. Uh, because it, it, the, the NIV reads this way, because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. That's not a good translation, all right? Uh, the ESV does a little bit better. It says he chastises everyone he calls a son. But in our day, chastisement has the connotation of verbal correction, of bawling somebody out, you know, reaming them out. Uh, and that's not what the word actually means. The word literally refers to the blows that are inflicted by a rod or a whip, okay? Thus, the versions which translate Hebrews 12 and verse 6, he scourges or he chastens everyone he receives as a son, are much better, I think. They're much more accurate. So, so last week, we made the distinction and, uh, the, and we examined the nature of divine discipline. And I don't have time to rehash it for you. Uh, the, the sermon should be up online. If it's not, it should be soon. It's on Facebook and it's on one of the podcast sites. And you can link to those on the website. This week, I want us to look at the purpose of divine discipline, and then I want us to look at our attitude under divine discipline. So why is God doing what he's doing, and how should we respond when he's doing it? And remember what we said last week, not all pain that comes into your life is discipline from God. Uh, it, it might be wise to at first check and see, Lord, are you correcting me for something? that I need to correction for. But if you can't think of anything and he doesn't show you anything, don't assume that he's disciplining you. There may be something else going on. So, so all discipline is painful, but not all pain is discipline, okay? So what is the purpose then of divine discipline? Well, we, we find in this passage three purposes. The first purpose is to prove our sonship. Now, ladies, the, the interesting thing about the book of Hebrews is because of the, the legal framework and environment in which those people lived at that time, um, to be a son uh, was very important. And so when the writer to the Hebrews talks about sonship, he's not excluding ladies uh, children of God, female children of God, but he is converting you into sons because sons had certain legal benefits that nobody else had, okay? So you get to be an honorary son in this. So the first purpose is to prove our sonship, and we find that in verses seven and eight. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? 
If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, we have to bridge a cultural context here in order to understand this properly. In the Roman world, a nobleman, somebody of great wealth and power and possessions, might have had many concubines and might have had many flings uh, with slave girls that produced illegitimate children. And he might support those children financially to one degree or another, but other than that, he would have virtually nothing to do with them. Uh, he did not instruct them. He did not see to their education. He did not discipline them. He pretty much just left them alone. Okay? And uh, all, an, all illegitimate children, no illegitimate child could inherit from the nobleman's estate, and he had no rights to his title. He, doesn't, he couldn't bear his name. Um, he was not considered part of the family. But the sons of a nobleman's legal wife, and in particular the eldest son, the one who would inherit his father's estate and his father's lands and his father's titles and his father's names, he was treated far differently. You see, the Romans did not spoil or indulge their children, their legitimate children, and in particular, the oldest boy. Uh, we, we, uh, we spoil our children today. The Romans did not do that. It was well recognized in the Roman world that simply handing over all of that money and all of that power and all of that responsibility to a, to a, a, a young man without training his character would be absolutely ruinous. It would be ruinous for the personal estate. It would be ruinous for the country. And so the father would send his child off to a boarding school, or he would put him under the care of a certain kind of slave who was responsible for his education and his character development. And that slave that was responsible to see to it that a nobleman's son was trained and disciplined and ready to take over, his, his, his title was pedagogos. That's where we get our, our word pedagogy in the education environment. The, the Pythagogos was the slave who oversaw the education and the character formation of these Roman noblemen these, as children. And this experience, friends, was intentionally brutal. The beds were hard. The rooms were cold. The food was bad. The coursework was demanding. The hours were long. There was physical training every day including training for combat and horsemanship, and it was practiced, and it was painful. It was not, it was not uh, you know, this kind of, okay, we'll all put on our pads and pretend. No, you're going to actually have fights with each other. And, and you could find yourself as one of these young men regularly being beaten with a stick or with a blunted uh, metal sword by your own classmates, and you were beaten for not answering a teacher's question correctly. Don't you wish you could have that kind of power, Judy? You could just whack, shut up, right? That'd be great. You were beaten for not being somewhere on time, or for being dirty, or for being rebellious, or for not finishing your chores. And Paul alludes to this practice in Galatians 4, verses 1 and 2, where he says, the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, 
but he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. So what was the life of this young noble like? Paul says it was almost indistinguishable from slavery. Why? To make him fit to receive his inheritance, to make him fit to rule and exercise authority, to humble his pride, to teach him to say no to his appetites, to teach him to look out for the more important things rather than just to amuse himself. Now, can you imagine one of these young men, after a long day of hardship, contemplating the life of his illegitimate half-brother? He would say to himself, I have to do all these nasty lessons. He doesn't. I have to sleep on this hard bed in this cold room while he has a soft bed in his mother's house. I have to suffer all these blows for my bad behavior and lack of conformity while he does and says pretty much whatever he wants. I'm eating bread and water, and he's hanging out at Starbucks all day drinking lattes and eating muffins. I wish I was in his place. And the father comes and says, oh, no, you don't. The father says, all of this unpleasant discipline, all of this training, first of all, proves that you're my legitimate son and my heir. You may not like it now, but when you're all grown up, you'll see that it was a tremendous gift and a pledge of my goodwill towards you. Therefore, endure all of this hardship with patience and let it have its good effect on you. And our loving Heavenly Father puts us through the ringer time and time again, and we cry out, why are you doing this to me? Father, don't you love me? And God, through his word to us this morning, replies, it is precisely because I love you, my child, that you are undergoing this discipline. I am forming your character so that you can be empowered to rule with me forever. For I know the plans I have for you, says our Father, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. And this discipline proves that you are my legitimate child, so let that be a source of comfort to you. Bear all of these things patiently. Let the discipline have its good effect on you. It's forming you in my image, and it is fitting you to rule. Now, is that not a source of of great comfort and great hope, loved ones. God's disciplinary hardships are actually proof that He loves you and has saved you. But the converse is also true. If you find yourself going from ease to ease and from apparent blessing to apparent blessing, if your life is the kind of life where the sun is always shining and the birds are always singing and the cotton is always tall, then it might just mean that you're not a true son. And that kind of puts a a different kind of spin on the whole name it and claim it, confess it and possess it, Joel Osteen, prayer of Jabez type thing, doesn't it? Because those prayers say in effect, oh God, treat me like an illegitimate child and make my life really nice and comfortable and prosperous. Amen. It's not that we're masochists. 
We don't enjoy pain. Uh, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, the writer to the Hebrews says. It's painful. We don't like it, but we endure it, and we anticipate its good effect. And while we don't long for it, we aren't exactly sorry to see it come, because we recognize that God is training us. So that's, that's the first purpose of divine discipline, is to prove our sonship. And isn't it interesting in our call to worship that Jesus... The sinless Son of God endured discipline. He learned discipline. And there was no sin in Him. So if it's good enough for Jesus, it's probably good enough for you and I. I've already alluded to the second purpose. The second purpose is to produce in us a certain kind of character. Specifically, the writer describes that character as righteousness and peace and holiness. We find this in verse 11 of Hebrews 12. And since the Lord is trying to produce in us through discipline what we have not got yet in sufficient member, I think it's helpful, measure rather, I think it's helpful to look at the, the opposites of righteousness and peace and holiness. What's the opposite of righteousness? Well, the opposite is unrighteousness, right? It's sin. And when our sins bear bitter fruit, that is either directly or indirectly connected with our sins, then God is disciplining us, and He's using that to cause us to forsake our sins. So, for instance, if you have an affair that leads to the disintegration of your marriage and the breakup of your family and the destabilization of your financial position in the world, and you find yourself lonely and miserable, guess what? You're being disciplined by the Lord. And I, I bet if you ever, by God's grace, got your family restored to you by a miracle, you'd never have an affair again, would you? It would just take that all right out of you and you'd say, no, that's bitterness that I don't have anything, but any time for ever again. If you made a, a business decision that was contrary to the word of God and express commandment of God and his word, and it leads to the failure of your business or a tremendous financial setback, that is the Lord's discipline. Obey his word. It is absolutely true that the Lord has placed the penalty for a Christian's sin on Jesus Christ and has punished him for it, and thus we are freed from that. But it is not, therefore, true that the Lord will not do anything about our sin. He will. And it's his mercy that he does so, and in his mercy he will discipline us. So if you are contemplating some action or activity that you know is sinful and you find yourself saying something like, I'm just going to do it and God will forgive me. I'll say sorry afterwards and God will forgive me. Be very, very careful. King David can tell you all about that. David sinned with Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan said, your sin is forgiven. But but in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 through 19, we have this scene where the prophet says, but, your sin is forgiven, but. The Lord's discipline included the death of the child, the ruination of his family, such that one of his sons sexually violated his half-sister, and then her brother rose up and killed that man, which led to a rebellion against David so that he had to run for his life. And the rebel son, Absalom, was himself killed against David's orders, and it broke David's heart. And David never committed adultery again, but the damage was done. 
And if you will not deal with your willful besetting sins through prayer and the influence of the scriptures, then you invite the Lord's painful discipline in your life. And so do I. He's not above, says 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5, he's not even above killing your body in order to save your soul. He will kill you in order to save you. Secondly, his discipline produces peace. So if we need to have peace produced in us, we must be suffering from peace's opposite. And what is the opposite of peace? Well, it's anxiety. And what causes anxiety? Well, setting your mind on things below, worrying about things like what shall I eat, what shall I drink, what shall I wear. It's the worldly cares that Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower that grow up and choke the word and make it unfruitful. And so what does God do? He sends painful trials to empty us of our self-sufficiency and to cause us to look to him. This is just exactly what I was talking about before I prayed. My biggest problem, I think, one of my biggest problems, is self-sufficiency. And I'm not trying to be rebellious about it. I just don't know any other way. I've got to learn a new way. And maybe that'll be painful. I hope not, but maybe it will. So he sends painful trials to us to empty us of our self-sufficiency and to cause us to look to him. He knocks our worldly crutches out from under us so that we collapse in a painful, ignoble heap on the ground. And then by his sanctifying grace, he bids us, child, rise and walk. Can I ask you this morning, what is it that you are relying upon? What is it that you lay awake at night dreading the loss of your spouse, your career, your assets, your job, your looks, your mind, your body, your children. You are begging God to take that thing away from you so that you will find yourself only able to look to Him. But then through that, the Lord will bring a harvest of peace into your life. I once heard a, a divorced middle-aged Christian lady named Peggy give a talk, and she had been abandoned by her husband and reduced to poverty, and she told her story, and then she said, when God was all I had, I discovered that God was all that I needed. And she was radiant when she said that. She was not a particularly beautiful woman, but in that moment, she was one of the most beautiful women that I have ever seen. Thirdly, his discipline produces holiness in us. And what is holiness? Well, it's a complex thing, but fundamentally, it's a separation from that which is worldly and profane and a separation unto that which is holy and righteous and good. So then it follows that if we need holiness, that we are too worldly and too profane. The Christian church today is weaker than it has been since before the Reformation in the Puritan era. We are rich, we are proud, we are soft, we are flabby, we are self-indulgent, we are ignorant of the truths of God, but we are very arrogant in our ignorance. Nobody can tell us what to do. 
we'll do whatever we think is right. We look a lot like the church that Jesus had John write to in a city in Turkey called Laodicea. And in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, Jesus speaks to that church. And he says the following. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The Greek literally means vomit. I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Discipline. That's what Jesus promises to the church in Laodicea. We've decided that the best way to reach the pagans for Christ is to become as much like the pagans as we possibly can and to speak as little of Christ's demands of repentance and faith and holiness of life as we decently can. And that's just what we've done. According to George Barna's book, Growing True Disciples, there's only about 10% of people claiming to be born-again Christians whose lives show any statistically measurable difference to the self-confessed unbelievers. We are, in the words of A.W. Tozer, the best disguised group of pilgrims the world has ever seen. What we need, and what the Lord will eventually send, are disciplinary trials that create holiness in His people. And what is holiness? What does it look like in the people of God? Well, it would look a lot like Christians loving God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving their neighbors as themselves and particularly the neighbors that are nearest by like in the pews around you. It would look like a bunch of people joyously obeying the moral law of God as it's expressed in the Ten Commandments from the heart by the help of the Spirit motivated by gratitude and love and holy fear of our God who saved us. And what sort of disciplinary trials would do something like that? Well, historically, it's been persecution and martyrdom. That's what God has used to do the trick. So maybe we're in for that again. It's starting to look like it. Lastly, and briefly, the third purpose of the Lord's disciplinary trials is to focus us patiently on our inheritance. Certain trials have a way of unknitting our hearts from this world and focusing them on the world to come. When your dearest treasures and trinkets are taken away and there is no hope of recovering them, when your body begins to disintegrate, 
When things begin to happen that show you how short and transitory is this life, and you begin to see how beautiful and durable and precious is the life to come, and you find that this world and its passing pleasures sink lower and lower in your estimation, and all sorts of temptations and distractions and besetting sins simply melt away, then you're in good shape as far as God is concerned. You know, some of you are, well, lots of you are old. Sorry, break that to you. You might not have noticed. And you might think to yourself sometimes, my life is almost over. The best is behind me. Stuff I could do, I can't do anymore. I enjoyed those things I can't do anymore, and I'm kind of angry about it, or at least sad. Your life is just beginning, child of God. You are closer now to more glory and more power and more strength than you know. Forever and ever, with no evil, your eyes will work, your heart will work, your mind will work, your body will be strong and durable and ageless. You are going to be something that if we could see you now, we would be tempted to worship you. That's how glorious you're going to be. Your life's not over. It's just about to begin. The British school system was modeled on the Roman school system that I described earlier. That's almost all gone now. But it persisted up until World War II. And C.S. Lewis, who's one of my favorite writers, attended a particularly bad and brutal version of one of these British boarding schools. The man who was running it was an Anglican clergyman who was probably insane. Um, He was institutionalized not long after Lewis left the school uh, in 1910 uh, when the school failed, and he died in an institution a year later. And he describes this place in some detail in his uh, autobiography, Surprised by Joy. But he wrote an essay in the 1960s uh, called My First School. And he described what that experience of brutality and discipline taught him. And so with this, we will close. He's talking about the end of the term when you get to go home. And he says this, and then the end of the term, the little penciled calendar in the desk, 23 days more, 22 days more, 21 days more, this time next week, this time day after tomorrow, this time tomorrow, the trunks have come down to the dormitory. John Bunyan tells us that when the pilgrims came to the land of Beulah, that Christian with desire fell sick, and hopeful also had a fit or two of the same disease. How well I know this sickness. It was no mere metaphor. It thrilled and wobbled inside, passing along the spine with delicious yet harrowing thrills. It took away the appetite. It made sleep impossible. And the last morning never betrayed one. It was always not less but more than desire had painted it. A dizzying exaltation in which one had to think hard of common things lest reason should be overset. I believe it has served me ever since as for the criterion 
for joy, and especially the difference between joy and mere pleasure. Those who remember such ends of the term are inexcusable if ever later in life they allow mere pleasure to fob them off. One can tell at once when the razor edge or the needle-pointed quality is lacking, that shock as if one were swallowing light itself. But one learned even more than that. At the beginning of each term, the end was incredible. One believed in it, of course, as a conventionally religious person believes in heaven. One disbelieved in it as such a person disbelieves in heaven. Consolations drawn from that source availed against the imminent horror of tomorrow's geometry, and geometry was the great flogging subject for us, just as much as talk about heavenly glory awaits, uh, avails against a worldly man's suspicion that he is getting cancer. The joys of home were, for the first half of the term, a mere escapist phantom. Theoretically, there was somewhere in the world a place where people had comfortable clothes, warm beds, chairs to sit in, and palatable food, but one could not make it real to one's mind. And then, term after term, the incredible happened. The end really did come. The bellowing, grimacing old man with his cane and his threats and his ogreish facetiousness, the inky walls, the stinking shed which served both as latrine and a storehouse for our play boxes, all heavily vanished like a dream. The darkness was over and the morning had come. That's what's waiting us for us one day. And that's what his discipline is training us for. Dear Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would teach us patience and the endurance of discipline. We ask that we would see it as a token of your love and as a means to instruct us so that we can actually get rid of the things that are separating us from you and keeping us from being what we want to be. Radiant, beautiful, glorious sons and daughters of the King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.